before I um, continue with the <clears throat> excuse me with the rest of the service, I just wanted to say thanks to uh, all the people who helped this week with uh, where we are not meeting in our normal worship space. Um, usually we're over there in the other building, so I just wanted to make a, make sure I mentioned to say thanks to everybody who helped with uh, helping us transition to just being over here for this week. Um, and we'll be back over in our normal space next Sunday. Um, our reading this morning is Psalm 100. It's there on your handout. I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word, if you're able. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would be glorified during this time, that you would give me clarity of words and of thought, and that you would be lifted high and worshipped through this time. Amen. One of the tragic trends that we see in our society today has been the steady rise in suicide rates. And recently we've heard in the news about the suicides of high-profile celebrities Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade, as well as some others. But this isn't just celebrities. Studies are clear that this affects people from all walks of life and all backgrounds. Sadly, there are probably many of us here who have either been directly impacted or we know someone who's been impacted by losing a loved one in recent years to suicide. And these tragedies make me stop and ponder was perhaps the hardest question every human being must at some point struggle to answer, and that is, why do I exist? Why am I here? I realize this is a heavy question, but have you ever considered this question? Do you know why you exist? Why you are alive? Why you're here? Well, don't worry if you can't can't answer that right now. It's okay. Many of you probably haven't thought about it. In fact, most of us don't really think about that, those kinds of questions normally. Um, that's okay, but I'd encourage you to really spend some time thinking about it because what if all of a sudden tomorrow your life just fell apart? What if all of a sudden you became severely depressed? What if in a moment of crisis you tried to find a reason for your existence and you couldn't? So it would be far better for you to have thought about that question now and had a ready answer long before you got to that point. But maybe you are struggling with this question. Maybe you're having a hard time finding a satisfactory answer. Or maybe you've just discovered that the answer you thought you had is not really an answer at all. Well, my purpose here today is to tell you that what the Bible says is the reason all of us exist, and that is that we exist to worship God. Now, by worship, I don't just mean coming to church. That's important. We need to be doing that. But coming to church is only a part of what worship is. Our confession of faith, summarizing what the Bible teaches, tells us that the chief end or the purpose of humanity is to glorify God and enjoy Him. 
And that's essentially really what worship is. It is enjoying God and what he has done and giving him glory. One important, as I said, an important way we do this is when we come to church, but there's so many other ways to do this. Paul, in fact, goes so far to say in 1 Corinthians 10.31 that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So this is what you and I and every person who has ever lived were born to do. And this is not only for when we go to church, but in every moment of every day and everything that we do. Now, I want to make two important clarifications before moving forward. First, it's not enough just to assent that you know this, as if this is some kind of abstract fact. For this answer to be effective as a reason for your existence, it has to take hold of you. It has to sink down through your head, into your heart, and down to the very depths of your soul to the very bottom and foundation of your being, so that in everything you you do, you are striving with all your might to enjoy God and glorify Him. Secondly, knowing your purpose in life does not make all your problems and difficulties go away. There are mature Christians who genuinely know and believe that they were made for worship and they strive to live in that manner, but who still struggle with depression, anxiety, and who go through times of severe crisis, even doubt. But when they go through those times, we have a sure foundation because we know why we exist, why we are here, and we, we know why we must go on existing and go on living. And we trust that even through good times and bad times, the ups and the downs, as we strive to enjoy God, to worship Him, He will be glorified in us and we will be fulfilling our purpose in life. So the Bible is clear that our purpose in life is to worship God, and we're going to look at exactly how the Bible says that in just uh, a minute by looking at our passage that we read this morning, Psalm 100. And we're also going to consider how we can know for sure that living a life of worship to God will actually be the most satisfying and fulfilling life that we could ever live. Excuse me. So first of all, how do we know that we exist to worship God? As I said, that's what the Bible teaches us. And we'll get to that in a minute. But before we go on to that, I want us to acknowledge the reality, first of all, that everybody worships something. doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not, if you consider yourself religious or not. Everybody worships something. Whether you realize it or not, you are a worshiper. Human beings have the capacity of experiencing transcendence. What I mean by that is if you were to leave today to go on a trip to the Grand Canyon, you get there at sunrise tomorrow, you get out of your car, you walk into the park, and you go up to the edge of the canyon, you look out, how would you feel? I haven't been there myself, but I've had the feeling described to me. It's like you are completely blown away. You are left awed and amazed at the wonder and the majesty and the beauty, the greatness of what you see. It captivates you. It grabs hold of you. And that is because this is something that is greater than you. It's bigger than you. It's more beautiful. It's, it is awesome. It has been around long before you were born. It will continue to be there long after you're gone. This is something that transcends your life. And so we are able to experience these kinds of moments of transcendence. And it, doesn't, and it can be through nature, but it's also through food, 
relationships, um, could be through um, parties, through pleasure. There's, there's so many ways that people experience these things, through art and music. But we all have the capacity to experience those things, and this means something about how we are made and why we are made. It has significance, and these experiences naturally lead us to worship. Our, our tendency is to automatically, we worship whatever it is that gives us that experience. We tend to make that ultimate for us. And this is borne out. We see that religion of some kind is universal. doesn't matter where you go or where you study. If you look at ancient history, ancient civilizations all had their form of religion. Or it doesn't matter where you go in the world today. There's the ma- you see the major world religions of today, but you can go to the most remote places on earth, the deepest, darkest jungles, and to the most remote deserts. There's still some form of tribal religion practiced. Religion of some form is universal because we are all worshipers of something. And even in places like the United States, where you have an increasing number of people who consider themselves to be not spiritual or irreligious, we still worship. Consider the way that we treat our favorite sports teams or the way we obsess about our favorite celebrities. We latch on to these people, to, to these things that give us a sense of being a part of something special. Like we can escape our ordinary lives. Like we too can be extraordinary and we worship those things. So everybody worships something, whether you realize it or not. We all worship. But the Bible does clearly teach us that our reason for existence is to worship God, the true God. And we see that, first of all, in the passage that we read today, that God invites us to worship him. Verse 2 says, Come into his presence with singing, in verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. God calls to us. He invites us to come into his temple, into his home, into his presence, to see him, to know him, to experience him, and in response, to worship him. This is why at Christ Church we begin every service with a call to worship because God is calling to us, inviting us in. We have direct access to God to come worship him and he invites us into that. We also see that God has made us for worship. Look in verse 3. It is he who made us and we are his. This is a reference to the creation of man and woman. Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his, in, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. It's really important to understand what it means when the Bible says that we are made in God's image. Being made in God's image means that we are reflections of his glory. Just like a mirror reflects you, we reflect the glory of God to everyone around us and to creation around us so that God will be worshipped. We don't only reflect his glory, we are also able to have relationship with God. We're able to commune with God. That's the other important part of being made in his image, that we can relate to him and connect with him. And we do that through worship. So God has made us to worship him by making us in his image so that we can reflect his glory and be in relationship with him. But God also commands us to worship. Were you listening closely when we read the passage Those are commands. Make a joyful noise. Serve the Lord. Those invitations are commands as well. Come into his presence. Enter his gates. Give thanks. Bless his name. 
God commands us. He has the right and the authority to expect and command worship from us because we are his. We belong to him. The first commandment of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 says, you shall have no other gods before me. Typically, we just assume that that means you can't worship any false gods, right? There's no idol worship. But there's actually an implied commandment there that has a positive response. It requires a positive response. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number 46, asks, what is required in the first commandment? Not just what is forbidden, what is required? The answer is, the first commandment requires us to know and acknowledge God to be the only true God and our God, and to worship and glorify him accordingly. Jesus himself kind of was responded in, in this similar vein when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He responds, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. This is basically a restating or rephrasing an elaboration on that positive command of the first commandment. This is what it means to actually live a life of worship to God, to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, and mind. And the reality is we can't do this. We fall far short. But the good news is is that God has also redeemed us. He has redeemed us to worship him. Verse 3 says, We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. We are the ones that he has called out, set apart, redeemed for himself. If you have believed in Jesus and you, and he, for your forgiveness of sins and you trust in him and you are a Christian, have you ever stopped and thought about exactly why it was that Jesus saved you? Why? What was the reason? 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a, ro- a holy nation, a people for his own possession. In other words, you are among God's people. You are among those whom he has saved. And here's the reason why. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's the reason. So that we would proclaim his excellencies, so that we would worship him. We would proclaim the excellencies of the God who saved us to everyone and anyone who will listen. We proclaim his excellencies back to him in worship and adoration. We proclaim his excellencies to ourselves, reminding ourselves of all he has done. We proclaim his excellencies to those who haven't heard and haven't trusted in Jesus so that they too will be saved. We proclaim his excellencies to other believers who need to grow and mature and be discipled in knowing more of God and of his word. The entirety of the Christian life can be seen as an outflow of worship, proclaiming his excellencies in everything that we do in response to what he has done for us. So the Bible clearly teaches that our reason for existence is to worship him. But how can we know that worshiping God will actually satisfy us? The first reason... The most basic reason is that he is God. Look at verse 3. Know that the Lord, he is God. What do we mean when we say that? We mean by saying that he is God, he is the only one worthy of worship because he is the only one who is of infinite power and worth and beauty and perfection and glory. There are no other gods 
There is nothing else like him. There is nothing else that is worthy of the worship. He alone is worthy to receive. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 11, For from him, through him, and to him are all things, and to him be glory forever. Amen. And then as an outflow of that reality, he goes on, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Worship is an offering of our entire lives, our bodies, as it were, on the sacrificial pyre of worship to God. Because he alone is worthy of it. To him is glory forever. He is God. We also know that worshiping him will satisfy because he is good. Look in verse 5. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. We look at what he has done and we can say without a shadow of a doubt that God is good. He has been good to us. He loves us. His steadfast love endures forever. Have you ever stopped and been blown away that the God of the universe, the God who made all things and sustains them by his power, the God who is of infinite perfection and value and beauty knows you and loves you. Because he is good. Not because you deserve it, because he is good. And he has sent his son to save us by dying in our place on the cross so that we can have life through him. We also know that worshiping God will satisfy us because the reality is that nothing else will. There is nothing else that will satisfy us. Um, If you have not read the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible, highly recommend that you take the time to read it. It's actually a really short book, but it is dense. It's a little bit difficult to get through. And so um, there's great resources that will help you in studying that book out there. Uh, You can come talk to Luke. You can talk to me. Talk to one of the elders. uh, Talk to your community group leader. Um, If you have any questions about it, I highly recommend you you study that book. And this is the, the basic gist of what the author of Ecclesiastes says. What he does is he sets up all the things that people, that human beings, tend to to make their reason for existence. All the things that we tend to worship, that we make ultimate in our lives. So he talks about wealth, social status, and power. He talks about pleasure. He talks about uh, the accumulation of knowledge and wisdom. He talks about even the legacy, what we leave behind to those after us. He sets all of these things up, and then he just knocks them all down. He absolutely demolishes them and shows that none of those things that we tend to pursue as reasons for existence are sufficient in and of themselves, and none of them are worthy of our worship. God alone is worthy. And that is his conclusion. Fear God. Seek God even while you are young. And if you don't believe the author of Ecclesiastes, you can just ask Michael Jordan. One would think that if anyone could make it, if anyone could make something else his reason for existence, Michael Jordan succeeded at making basketball his reason for existence. After all, he is arguably the greatest of all time. He is one of, definitely one of the greatest athletes who has ever lived. Very few athletes have ever achieved so much at any sport as he has. And yet, ESPN wrote an article about Michael Jordan in 2013 about him turning 50 years old. 
And, in, and for the article, the, the reporter was able to interview him and, and, and family and friends and follow him around for a little bit. And I, just full disclosure, the, the, it is for mature audiences because of language. But the article is so sad because it depicts a picture of a man who is trapped in a struggle with the ghost of his former self. He says that he would give up anything. He would give anything to be able to just play the game of basketball again. He's still driven by the same competitive spirit and nature that drove him to achieve all that he had. And he can't turn it off. And so he has no peace. He himself says it toward the end of our garden, how can I find peace away from the game of basketball? So perhaps for a time he succeeded at making basketball his reason for existence, but now that he can't play, basketball wants nothing more to do with him. And he has no peace. Contrast that story with another athlete, a man by the name of Eric Little. If you haven't seen, there's a movie about him called Chariots of Fire. If you haven't ever seen it, highly recommend it. It's an excellent movie. Um, Eric Little was a Scottish sprinter. Uh, who competed in the 1924 Olympics. He was also a devout believer. And he became a missionary. He went on to become a missionary to China. But before he did that, he decided to run in the Olympics, to compete in the Olympics. He actually put his missionary career on hold in order to do that. And in the movie, as he's sharing that decision with his sister, who's frustrated with him because she doesn't understand why he's just pursuing this silly uh, racing and he wants him to go serve the Lord in China, what he tells, he tells her this. I believe that God made me for a purpose, for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. I feel his pleasure. To give it up would be to hold him in contempt. It's not just fun. To win is to honor him. He did win his event. But then he also went on to serve the Lord in China, and he actually died in a Japanese prison camp during World War II. But from the two of those stories, which one comes away clearly as being the most satisfied and fulfilled in life? I think we'd clearly have to say it was the sprinter and not the basketball player. But what is your object of worship Is it work? Is it school? Is it entertainment? Is it pleasure? Is it even coming to church? It can be good things. Is it your children? Is it your marriage? Is it family? Even pastors can fall into the trap of seeing, being a successful pastor, having a big church, being a a great speaker or a great writer. We can see that as the ultimate and as the reason of our existence. It's a dangerous trap to fall into. But we should all examine ourselves and remember the reality that God alone is great enough and worthy enough and strong enough to be the reason for our existence. He alone is worthy of our worship and nothing else is. The reality is, none of us will ever be as good at we do as Michael Jordan was at basketball. And if Michael Jordan can still end up being disappointed and not have any peace... What could be said of us one day? 
But that is the final reason why we know that worshiping God will satisfy us. Look at the last line of Psalm 100. His faithfulness is to all generations. God is faithful. That means he will never, ever disappoint us. He will never, ever stop being worthy of worship. He will never, ever stop being a sufficient, adequate reason for our existence. Nothing else can bear that weight. Even your marriage, even your children. Nothing can bear that weight except God alone and worshiping Him. Because we know that He is faithful and He will never disappoint us. So we can know that worshiping God will satisfy us. And what are some practical ways then that we can grow in our daily worship? Well, first of all, um, one way we can do that is to come to worship service. Come to church regularly. As I said before, that's not what worship is. It's an important part of it. And it is important because we should be present. We should make the effort to be present when God is being worshipped among his people. That ought to be of value and importance to us. We'd be, we are willing to make sacrifices for that, if that is our reason for existence. Another way that we can grow in, our, in our, our daily worship is to read and meditate on Scripture. Meditate's just an old word that means think about it. Read it and think about it. Don't just skim over it and then forget about it, but spend time thinking about it. Consider what it says about God and how exactly he's worthy of worship. Consider what it says about you and how you have fallen short in worship and how you need to be forgiven. Consider what it says about Jesus and what Jesus has done to secure our forgiveness and our place before God. And as a response to that, you can worship So in conclusion, I'd ask, is worship at the center of your life? Well, as we said, everybody worships something. So whether you admit it or you realize it or not, worship is at the center of your life. It is. But is worship of God at the center of your life? Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great British pastor of the last century, asks it this way. Do you know God? Are you enjoying God? Is God the center of your life, the soul of your being, and the source of your greatest joy? He's meant to be. He made man in such a way that that was to be the position, that man might dwell in communion with God and enjoy God and walk with God. You and I are meant to be like that. And if we are not like that, it is sin. That is the essence of sin. We have no right not to be like that. That is sin of the deepest and worst type. The essence of sin, in other words, is that we do not live entirely to the glory of God. And I think we should all come away from that question, cut to the heart, convicted of the reality that none of us live that way. We don't. We can't. But there is one who did. There is one who lived a life of perfect worship, perfectly glorifying his Father in everything that he did, and that is Jesus Christ. 
And although he lived that life of perfect worship, he died the death to suffer the punishment that we deserved so that in our place he can offer us forgiveness and life. And he rose from the dead to secure our eternal life. And even now he is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf so that when God, our Father, looks at us, he doesn't see our measly, half-hearted, distracted worship. He sees the perfect, righteous worship of Christ. How are we to respond to that? That is the gospel. That is the good news. How do we respond to that? We respond, first of all, by confessing our idolatry and our false worship, our distracted and half-hearted worship. We confess that knowing our forgiveness, resting in the righteousness and the perfect worship of Christ on our behalf. And then we respond by living a life that is different. We strive to live a life of worship. Johann Sebastian Bach is arguably the greatest musician who has ever lived. So if anyone ever had a right to glory in himself or to see maybe music as his reason for existence, it would have been Bach. But we know that he didn't. We know that he strove to worship God, that that was at the center of his life. And we know this because on every piece of music he wrote, he inscribed these three letters, S-D-G. And that was short for the phrase, Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone glory. It was a reminder to him, and it's a reminder to us, it was a reminder to him that music was not his reason for worship. He wasn't in this to his reason for existence. He wasn't in this to glorify himself. He wrote music so that God would be worshipped and glorified. So that every day of his life, he would live a life of worship in what he did. So what about us? Could we, if every single day of our lives were a piece of music, would we, like Bach, be able to write on it, Soli Deo Gloria? Could we do that? Could we strive to live that kind of life imperfectly, but we trust in the gospel? And that impels us to try, to seek to live that kind of life. And we know that if that is our ambition, we know for certainty that God is faithful and that he is good and that he will never leave us disappointed and that we will most surely be fulfilled and satisfied in our life. Let's pray.